Welcome to the College Version 2 Podcast. And now your hosts, Ross Markle and Andrea Pope. Andrea, it's good to be back with you for episode two of the College Version 2 Podcast. How are you doing this week? I'm doing real good, and I'm excited to talk about this because you know my background is not in community college work, but it's super fascinating, and I've loved learning about our topic today. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one because I remember when I started working at ETS, too long ago to remember at this point, but it was like this was just starting as a, or I should say it had just started as a movement and people were starting to do, do I wouldn't just say good work, but moving into this space more accurately. And this space we're going to talk about today is like course placement, developmental education, and you'll kind of understand why we want to talk about all those things as one system, hopefully by the end of this. But um, to see where the field has gone in that time has been pretty remarkable and still with a long way to go, um, which is what we're going to talk about today. But, you know, we'll get into all that. So it's a really fun topic for me because I've been involved in a lot of this work and I've seen a lot of this work. And unlike some other things where we're still trying out stuff, I feel like this is an area where we've made really good progress. So let's kind of jump into it. But first thing I want to ask you, Andrea, is what are what are your first like memories of going to college? Like when you think about like what was salient to you in showing up and engaging with this system, what was that like for you? Um, I think the first few things I remember, I remember moving into my residence hall with my parents and meeting my RA and my roommate. I remember um, I went to what they called pre-orientation, which was for students of color, and we got a chance to kind of network and get to know some faculty and staff. Uh, and then I remember orientation, which was a big affair where there were lots of different organizations and games and icebreakers and all those types of things. And so it was like the first week that we were there before classes even started, it was just an opportunity to make friends and get to know folks and have a good time learning about the institution. What about so, you? Well, I want to ask you a question because this is something, you know, I, I always say like I'm pretty good at checking my privilege, but I don't know if that sounds like BS when I do it, but <laughs> I, I feel like I'm always very curious, and I hope you don't mind me asking your perspective on this, but like I worked with a, somebody, a, a former colleague of mine, Pete Trinikosti, who did a lot of work on first-gen students. And he and I one time had a debate about like whether it's good to like inform students about being first-gen or if that might like create some feelings of otherism, you know what I mean? So I'm just kind of curious, how did you feel or if you can recall how you felt about showing up to that session that was for students of color and did that make you feel like weird or different or did you appreciate it i'm just kind of i could see that going all sorts of ways and i'm i'm interested to hear your perspective on it i i think at the time uh i felt there was a part of me initially that felt like being invited was implying that I should be closer to or connect more readily with the people who were in that orientation. And I actually found that the connections that I made, um, the more lasting connections that I made didn't come from that pre-orientation. At the same time, in that pre-orientation, I uh, connected with faculty and staff in a way that was probably closer, I was more, I was got more connected to faculty and staff 
through that experience than probably any other experience in my time in college. That was the time where I felt the most like I had a connection there. So I think looking back, I do think it was a valuable experience. At the time, I thought it was a bit gimmicky. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was my experience. Well, it, and this is a topic you have great expertise in, in terms of program theory and thinking about how our interventions, we, we design them up to work in a certain way. Um, but you and I probably know this just, you know, with our survey administrations we've been doing recently, where it's like, we build up this great system and we think it's going to work this way. But the moment you flood a couple thousand students through it, they're going to find every nook and cranny of imperfection and it's going to work in ways you didn't anticipate. So I just want to, I think that's very relevant to the conversation we're going to have today about we design this system with certain messaging and process that's intended to move students along, but they react in different ways. They sometimes don't get what we're trying to do or they take away a different message. So um, to, right. back to your question, um, my first memories are very similar. Uh, I have a vivid memory and I've told, probably because I've told this story often, I remember riding in the car with my mom and dad. And I remember like one of those dad moments where he like looks over his shoulder to tell you something. Um, but I remember him telling me like, look, you have 15 hours of credits this semester. You're supposed to spend two hours outside of class for every hour inside of class. So that's 45 hours. He's like, look, if you just work from eight to five, like a job Monday through Friday, he's like, you can go party every night. You can go out and do whatever you want on the weekend. That's the thing I remember most because that's always a lesson I give in social cultural capital that I got that because my dad went to college and graduate school and other students whose parents didn't, they're riding up thinking about, or maybe their parents aren't even there or, you know, all of those things where it's like that connection is different. Yep. And the same point I want to make and why I'm bringing all of this up in relation to our conversation about course placement is what you and I had and what we remember about our first engagements with our college experience is so different for most students in, the, in all of higher education. And unfortunately, I think most of us that work in higher education are there because we had a pretty traditional path. We got a four-year degree. We probably went on and did some graduate study, but we probably didn't do what most community college students, especially before 20 years ago, used to do, which was you show up, you got to take a placement test, and in many cases, that's going to lead to bad news. And I feel like that, it's just back to my point about asking you about that pre-orientation, is we've set up this system of placement, especially the way it used to exist, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, um, but where we think it's like, hey, we need to assess these students. We need to understand where they are because we need to get them in the right classes. And if they're not prepared to take college algebra, then if we put them in that class, they're gonna get lost and they're gonna feel discouraged. Let's put them in an easier math so that they can get, the, you know, polish their skills and be ready to take it in the next semester. And so I think most of us are not familiar with what that feels like. And I think we tend to couch that experience into the, the schemata that we just talked about, which is, oh, that was just a part of coming to college and orientation and getting, but no, what we were really doing, especially in community colleges, was taking those students who had balanced college with a family and or a job and lots of other things, and maybe were coming back to college after having failed before or never having gone and thinking that was something they couldn't do. 
And the first things we were doing were giving them a really hard test that they probably weren't going to do well on. And then in many cases, the majority of cases telling them you're not ready to be here, really, in, in all essence. And I think what we thought was a, I mean, we called it remediation because we thought this was a necessary step to prepare them academically. What we didn't realize was the messaging they were getting, huge discouragement, both from the testing experience, as well as sort of um, that, that placement decision when it wasn't good. Whether or not they realized that most students were hearing, I'm not ready to be here. And that, I, we've done a lot of research I can talk about on, on what the effects of that are. Um, but at the same time, that was, you know, then we're just basically saying, here's a system you overcame challenges to engage with, and now you're not even really ready to be here anyhow. That was the message most students were getting. And I think that was, that's a real, that was a real misstep, I think, in what we were doing previously in terms mm -hmm. of course placement. So I wanted to take a minute to talk a little bit about what that was like what we saw from that and kind of the impetus for change. So again, yeah. if, you, if you're new to this space, you know, 20 years ago, almost every community college in the country had a system where all students stepped in, took a course placement test, and depending on those results, would be placed in maybe uh, one level below college or up to, I would say I've seen three to five levels in most cases when schools I used to work with of remediation, where if you scored at the bottom of the test, to get into college level, you'd have to take the fourth level of remediation, come back next semester and pass it, take the third level, come back next semester and pass it. So you're talking about every level is a whole other semester until you're even in college level courses, let alone graduation or transfer. You know, those things are so far off at that point. Um, and as a result, huge, huge levels of, I mean, I kind of would like to get your take on, I know you just, you know, we're looking through some of the studies when you were looking at the success rates of those that course placement system, kind of what was your reaction in that case? I was completely shocked. I did not realize that we're talking about a majority of students who are placed into remediation are never going to get to the college level course that they were, you know, that, that first college level course. And that's completely, completely mind boggling to me. And when I, we, you know, we talked a, um, a bit about uh, retention and sense of belonging last week. And we talked a little bit about those kind of retention rates. And I'm just like, wow, it seems like from the very beginning, we've acknowledged, we've identified one of the key factors that's going to limit retention for students is all of the work that they have to do to even get to the point of starting their college journey. Yeah, and I mean, there's um, I would say probably the quintessential study in this was done by Tom Bailey, um, Sung and uh, I'm sorry, uh, and Wuchu at uh, CCRC Community College Research Center, and they took a data set with, that had about seventy thousand students, and I'm if if my recollection is correct, I believe, and this wasn't published in the study, but I'm pretty sure this came from one of the urban systems in Texas, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but looking at, okay, at the moment of placement, what happens after that, right? And what happens mm -hmm. if students get referred into certain, you know, if they get referred into one level, two levels, three levels, four levels, and you look at those, first off, the data they find in the number of students who are placed into developmental courses and never show up on campus. You talk about enrollment melt, 
like a huge melt point right after that. And that was one of the first pieces of evidence for maybe just this message is discouraging and that's yep. making students leave. But then you look at the data about students that, you know, what if they get in one level versus two levels and three levels and four levels? And it's really, really scary. And again, we'll drop the citation on the description in the webpage. So you'll be able to access that. We won't go into the, the actual data, but um, I do think looking at that study to understand, again, if you started doing this work in the last three, three to five years, how different the landscape was 10 to 15 years ago um, and more, as a matter of fact. But um, that, I think, just looking at that data is just such a good example of why the work that we do and kind of general, you know, I always talk about Tinto as like, you know, we talked last week about the social implications of Tinto. I think the other thing was that we never really looked at data on, on just simple progression metrics before Tinto. And I kind of felt like this study was the, the community college equivalent of that to kind of say, we've been doing this placement for 50 years and we've never really stopped to look how well students are getting through it. What, I, what really stood out to me as I was starting to look at the, the information about course placement kind of goes back, back exactly to what you're saying, which is the the efficacy of it and how do we how did we come to this system and then how do we decide whether this system is working for us and i think a lot of times when a college or university is thinking about a test and whether this test is effective um this word validity gets thrown around a lot is the test valid um but you know if we look at the standards for educational and psychological testing and their definition of validity, what we see is that validity is about the degree to which all of the evidence supports intended interpretations and proposed uses of test scores. So it's all about articulating how we're intending to interpret and use a test and whether there's evidence to support that. Um, and in the, the case of placement tests, what I was finding is that um, you know, our intended interpretation is like we want to be able to interpret those scores as telling us the likelihood that students will be successful in college level courses. Um, and it's we use a lot of kind of predictive validity evidence to try to establish that. So trying to predict how um, distinguish between those students who are likely or not likely to succeed, um, looking at the relationship between the test scores and grades and those target courses. Um, and I was finding that there wasn't a lot of great predictive validity evidence, but then even on top of that, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that evidence, but even on top of that, that's only one part of the equation. Because if we're talking about the proposed uses of the placement test, and we're, we're talking about like selecting a cutoff and sending all students below that cutoff through a series of remediation courses, then if we're going to be judging the validity of that placement testing system, that means we have to evaluate the efficacy of that entire remediation track. And I think that's where the evidence around placement testing for me was even more damning, is that we were finding, like you said, that um, I think it was also from a, a, an article from uh, Thomas Bailey from CCRC, where he was saying that uh, students that were assigned remediation, but decided to go straight into their college level, the college level course anyways, that they were slightly less successful than those students who were placed automatically into the college level course, but they were so much more successful than those students who actually abided by their remedial placement because the majority of those students did, never took the college level course. And that's just, it's mind blowing to me. 
So you bring up two really good points. So the first one on the side of testing, and this was right when my career was starting and I was working at ETS at the time. And um, we, you know, our, actually our, um, the board at ETS had two community college presidents on it. And I actually think maybe the reason I got my job was because of their, they said, we need to do more research on this. And I think that kind of opened up the avenue for me. But you know, at that time, they were looking to ETS and the college board and ACT and saying, can we get better tests? Because as you say, it was this idea of can we better predict who needs this and who doesn't? But that issue got conflated with the validity of it's not just a prediction of a single metric. And, and so you, as you mentioned, in that Bailey kind of self-acceleration study, one of the things that you have to realize from a validity perspective is if all you're saying is that we're trying to predict who's going to pass college level math or comp one or whatever it might be, that's one validity argument. And, and College Board and, and ACT, they put out some, some respectable validity studies. I think those tests are reasonably good metrics of predicting who will get that grade in the course. But this is the same point we made last year of kind of separating academic and retention outcomes. Passing that course is mildly significant in this whole equation. And this is what I used to say to faculty whenever we would talk about kind of course acceleration paths. So if I take a student who scores in the bottom 10% of, of your placement test, they're you know, one of the least prepared students come to your school, and I drop them into, let's say, college algebra, I'll say, like, what is the probability that they're going to pass that course? And they would say, I, they're not going to. And I'd say, will you give me 5%? And they'd say, sure, I'll give you a 5% chance they pass that course. And then I said, well, okay, now you have four levels of math remediation. So if we put that student in that fourth level, now you're telling me they have to show up to that class and pass, come back next semester, show up to that class and pass, et cetera, et cetera. So you're talking about four different course passings, four different semesters of retention, and then showing up to the college level course and passing it. And so please tell me you think that the prop, that probability is lower than 5%. Because I can tell you statistically, it's, I mean, that's what the Bailey study showed. It's zero. Nobody's doing it. And so that was the problem, and, and that's, it, Michael Caine, will, will, again, a citation will be provided. His chapter on validity, where he uses college course placement as such a fascinating case study of validity, is, is exactly right, because the test is an indication of preparation. And what you correlate that with is one examination of validity. But if all you're correlating it with is that, that uh, grade in the course, You've conflated it because it's not, are they prepared? It's, are they going to pass that course? Maybe you're teaching math in a terrible way for students who aren't prepared. So no matter what characteristics they bring, that intervention is not gonna be effective. It assumes all the variability is on the student side and not on the intervention side. And that's what, what Michael Caine said was, you have such a conflation of validity issues. It's, is this test accurately measuring what you needed to measure, but then, what are you doing based on those results? So it's like, you know, it's like if I step on a scale, right? And then I go to the gym every day for a month and I gain 10 pounds. Do we say that the scale is broken? Like, no, we would say like, man, the things you did afterward, maybe you weren't eating great. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of other things. Maybe you put on 10 pounds of muscle. You know, like you're, you're blaming the measure on the intake for all of the problems that, that happen afterward when, 
there were many other variables you could have pointed to. And so that was a really key moment because I think that's when really high stakes educational researchers like CCRC, like college, like a lot of folks were saying, it's not the test fault. I mean, the test is, is limited in that it's a one measure of academic preparation. It's lengthy, it's discouraging, it's difficult. The test was not perfect, but the test was not the biggest culprit here. And so that shifted us, you know, in the, you know, around 2010, uh, really shifted us into a bunch of different innovations that I want to talk about. So shifting from part one of this story, which is we had this huge, nebulous, difficult test-based system of placement that was really reliant on how smart are you when you get here? And then if you're not smart, we're going to give you a bunch of remediation that actually is going to do more filtering out than it is promoting success. Um, I will say, last note, as I decry the previous era of course placement, I used to always ask folks, why do you have remedial education? And they would say, oh, to prepare students, you know, for college level courses, because a lot of students show up unprepared. And I would say, well, it's not doing that. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the data, no one's making it out of this remedial sequence and passing college level courses. So let's try again on the purpose, because if that's the purpose, we're hugely ineffective. Hey, everybody, Ross here. First off, I want to apologize for the audio issues. Part of the growing and learning with having a podcast is, you know, learning different technologies. And with Andre and I being remote, it took us a while to get technology and the sound and the room and the microphone, all that stuff. So thank you for your patience and apologies. We promise that will get better. Secondly, if you like what you're listening to, I wanted to stop and say thank you. And I hate to be one of those social media people that says to smash that like button, but really the best thing you can do to help us to continue and to grow this work is to share this, to like it, and to leave a review wherever you might be finding this podcast. Thanks so much. It reminds me of something that you mentioned in our last podcast when we were talking about um, uh, persistence. And we were saying that like, we want to switch that perspective from a student's, per the student's persistence is about them and their, their in intellect or their ethic. And it's about the student and focusing more on what's the environment that we're creating. It seems like this is another example where that type of mindset can really, um, could be what is contributing to that, this course, this, the old model of course placement being so um, uh, rampant or so widespread. You're exactly right. If, if we had all started off and said, hey, we've got a lot of students who are showing up unprepared. What can we do to get them ready for college level courses? If that was the mindset we'd entered into developmental education with, we would have left that model decades ago because it clearly wasn't doing that. What I always argue is the reason we've had course placement, and this is I think a real dirty secret, and I'm probably gonna get in some trouble with community college folks when I say this is, it's a de facto admission system. You have faculty who don't want kids that they think are unprepared in their courses. I say kids, but in many cases, it's also adults. And they said, I don't want them in my class. So let's give them this test to filter them out. And that may have never been explicitly stated, but that was the truth of the system, was that faculty didn't want that. And they would have told you, well, if we put them in there, they're not gonna do well. And that's all fine and dandy, but the fact that we never made any steps, you know, until, you know, the CCRC started calling us out, uh, the fact that we as a system never made those changes on our own is, I think it's a real shame. And if you look back over the decades at the number of people that were filtered out 
of community colleges because of that that broken system, it would be truly staggering and scary in my mind. Heartbreaking, yeah, for sure. It would be, absolutely. And if you think about it that way, I mean, I, it's a mindset we don't often take when we think about this. When we look at our retention numbers of when we think about our role in it and when we say, okay, hey, we, we retained 80% of our students last year. All right, that means we lost 20% of them. And that's 20% of, of students that may never come back to higher education, that may have lost their opportunity for upward social mobility, all those things. Um, and so that's always the way I look at it. You know me, it's, we have this, this phrase internally in our organization where I say, I don't care about what we've done poorly in the past, I care about how we're gonna do better in the future. And I, but I think if you were working in DevEd and you'd looked back and said, wow, in the last 10 years, we've filtered out whatever. I mean, pick up, you know, the City College of Chicago over a 10 year period probably filtered out a couple million kids that could have been successful in community colleges. But because of, of course, and I'm not picking on Chicago, every city could, you know, have the, these numbers. Uh, that's just the first one that popped into my mind. So, yeah. So that sad state of affairs, um, though, as I mentioned at the onset, like I'm excited because this is one of the few areas I think in education where we've made huge progress in a short amount of time led to a lot of, of, of advancements. And I want to kind of go through these. I'll kind of talk about them for a little bit. And then Andrea, as the relative newcomer to the space, if you have questions about where that came from or how that was implemented. We'll kind of give a little back and forth on that. So sounds good. The first thing I want to say is the simplification of pathways. And that is a, a language that's very resonant with what CCRC has been promoting. But I think a lot of institutions went from those three and four step remedial sequences down to one or two step remedial sequences. Um, and also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Mathways at this time, which is realizing, you know, uh, Yuri Treisman at the University of Texas has a phrase, which is, uh, we started off looking for math for everyone and we ended up with math forever. And um, really that idea of, does everyone need college algebra, right? Does everyone need calculus? Or are there professions and fields where learning statistics is more appropriate? And you and I are probably two people that would champion that call as much as anyone, because I don't know about you, but I haven't used calculus since uh, 12th grade and I've used statistics almost every day of my life since then. Um, I would have loved it if my high school math had shifted a little bit of stats. But that simplification was, I think, a step that wasn't first by any means, but I think it's the broadest. And I definitely think there are few institutions nowadays where you do have those, those long sequences of remediation that are the, I mean, I think the true, true barriers for a lot of students. And, and when we're talking about um, shortening those paths from three or four courses to one or two, is that mostly a, is, is that because we've become more knowledgeable about what the essential knowledge is that students need in order to be successful? Or are we kind of changing our pedagogy so that we can more effectively deliver more information or content or knowledge in a shorter amount of time? What, how, how is that simplification happening? It's, a, it's an excellent question, and I will tell you it's completely reasonable coming from someone whose background is in learning and psychology and program <laughs> theory. Um, I will tell you a story. So I was working with a community college one time. and We were doing a study where we were looking at, um, we had a holistic placement model. And so we were able to compare hypothetical placement based on a test with actual placement. And so we would say, students scored like here on the placement test. Uh, we know that if they scored that way, they should end up in, you know, let's say the second level of remediation. 
but we used holistic placement. And so we were able to figure out we could bump them up a level or two, maybe even get them into the college level course. So if you can imagine this grid of where you should have been placed versus where you were actually placed. And for the students who scored the lowest on the placement test, they basically, their, their rates of passing um, the next level up were double what they were in the, the lowest level. And their rates when they occasionally made it in the college level course were higher than the students who were placed there based on tests alone. So it was this idea of, I told them at the end of the meeting, I said, there's no argument you can give me for why a student should be placed in this course. Because in any other condition, they did better. These students yeah. that were placed here, I mean, what, I mean, there's no harm in moving them up. And I came back the next year and we were running data to evaluate the study. And I, I got the data and I started running it. And I asked them, I said, hey, I just want to check. There's no students enrolled in this lowest level of remediation. Is there something going on? What's, what, did you change the course code or something? And they came back and they said, well, you told us not to place anyone there because it didn't work. So we got rid of it. And I was like, whoa, like, okay, like, that's great. But I think the, the whole point is, it goes back to like what you said with the Tom Bailey study. We just found out that if we did other things, they worked way better. And really, it was this realization that why do we have three remedial courses when we put students in the third level? They don't make it out. So what if we only offer two? Oh, wow. Everything gets a lot better. And I really think it was that simple. I mean, I, I want to put like a UI or you know behavioral economics. It wasn't even that grandiose. It was really trying to shorten it because there's a lot of other benefits, even from scheduling and faculty costs, all those other things. So it was an easy choice to make. And then once you did it, you saw how well it worked. So that's that was really how those decisions were made. This episode is brought to you by the League for Innovation in the Community College. The League's 2024 Innovations Conference will be held March 17th to 20th in Anaheim, California. The call for proposals is open until October 13th, so submit your session now. Find out more at www.league.org. Thanks also to our sponsor, DIA Higher Education Collaborators. Want to understand your student's sense of belonging? Want to use vital student data to predict success? How about train your faculty and staff to better integrate a growth mindset into their work with students? DIA's Isaac platform can help you do all this and more. Find out more at www.isaac.net. That's I S. S A Q dot net. Now back to the show. So the next area I want to talk about is holistic placement. And this is an area where I think, you know, the, the term used to be multiple measures. Um, and we, in, and if you look back at the research and even stuff CCRC has done, when they talk about multiple measures, uh, the initial kind of way of talking about that was, well, what if we also look at high school grades or high school GPA, you know, these other academic measures? A few folks like myself were talking about the need to include more non-cognitive things. And we did a ton of research at ETS that showed when you make those holistic predictions, they, they're much better at identifying students who will do well in those courses. And I do want to go back to that, that Bailey and Wu Chu study in, from CCRC where they looked at uh, regression discontinuity models, which I know everybody knows what those are. But okay. basically, if you build a regression model based on students in the college level course, 
and you track that regression line back down to, to students below the, the cut score. They found huge numbers of students that just based on their data, you could have accelerated them up into the high level course and they would have got a B plus or better. I mean, they're on the margins, you're basically talking about errors in the placement test. But when you throw in other data, you can really get good estimates of underplacement. And they also found, worth noting, very few students were overplaced in terms of you put them in the college level course and we think they would have done better if you'd have placed them in the lower level course. Um, so that led to this idea of holistic placement and getting that bigger picture of the student at intake rather than just a test-based model only. Um, the one thing I'll say is the sad part of that was I can't tell you how many schools I worked with where when we started calling it multiple measures, they said, oh, well, we'll just give them another math test. And so in addition to Compass or AccuPlacer, they were adding on a local measure that their faculty liked better. And that was multiple measures. I'm putting air quotes around that if you're only listening to this, because it was two math tests instead of one math test, which wasn't really getting at what we meant when we said kind of holistic placement. Something I was reading about with um, holistic placement, especially with the use of those high school measures is that um, those high school achievement measures is that a lot of times those were, it seems like they were being used as a proxy for non-cognitive skills. And so it's, you know, we're incorporating high school GPA because we know that things like motivation um, and engagement, you know, are probably going to contribute to those grades. Um, and so it was, I was, I was very happy to see that we're kind of transitioning to a place now where people are understanding that Yes, that it might be a, a proxy, but it's a poor proxy for that. And we can get at those things a lot more directly. It, it, exactly right. We, um, when I was DTS, Steve Robbins and I wrote a couple research memos. I think we wrote one called Avoiding the High School GPA Track. <laughs> um, you probably sound like you found it. Yes. Um, but basically the point of that was high school GPA is incredibly limited. I mean, A, you only have it for the students that, you know, that can remember it or that, you know, so if you're looking at non-traditional populations, that's not gonna be a great data point just from availability. B, you have comparability issues when you're talking about, Not, I don't like the people always decry grade inflation. And I, yeah, you can talk about that, but there's just simple differences in curricular rigor that make it difficult to compare GPA. Um, but then the third thing is we know empirically when we do studies of non-cognitive data, Yes, high school GPA is a bit of a more holistic measure than something like a placement test alone. But if you add in dedicated non-cognitive measures, you're gonna do much, much better. It's actually gonna give you dedicated information. And to kind of align with what we do in our work, you're also now supporting a broader you know, kind of remediation because now you can not just support them in terms of the courses, but you can also add in sort of co-curricular supports if those non-cognitive data suggest them. And that kind of leads to a, an offshoot of holistic placement, which is really what a lot of the work we did at ETS was about, was about um, what we call course acceleration. And that has generally two terms in this space. One is condensing the schedule, literally accelerating the course itself, so that instead of it being a whole semester until you can go on, doing eight-week chunks, so that if you have two levels of remediation, you can get those done in the fall and move into the college-level sequence in the spring. There's some, some demonstrated effectiveness on that, but I think when you look at other in, interventions and 
innovations in this space, it kind of shows you that it wasn't because you shortened the sequence, it was because you did other things on top of it um, in order to remove some of those barriers. Um, but when we talked about course acceleration, we were really talking about, as I go back to that, that Bailey underplacement study, it was saying, look, if your cut score to get into the college level course is 80, if we give you a student who scored 76 and we can also tell you they're motivated and organized and all that good stuff, you can go ahead and bump them up into the college level course. We found massive success with that at several community colleges across the country, um, working with that idea of, of accelerating students who otherwise would have been placed into developmental courses. Um, and I think that was a really, really helpful thing for faculty to see because when we showed them, hey, look, we're not talking about moving everybody up. What if you give us this just sliver of students who are pretty close anyway, who if they took the placement test tomorrow, they probably could, could get above an 80. They would say, yeah, we'll buy that. And then when we showed them that those students could do so much better, we were able to make that zone of consideration bigger and bigger over time. And for a lot of the schools we worked with, it really got to a point of like, wow, that's where we started getting rid of sections of courses and things like that, because you started to realize that placement test was, in, was a faulty metric. And again, not necessarily because of its quote unquote validity in the way that we traditionally think about it. It wasn't that it was predictive of success. It was just insufficient. It wasn't capturing all the things. And if we added other metrics that were independent of academic prep, we got a much better idea of who was going to pass and who I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but hearing you just now makes me wonder even more strongly about this, which is, um, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about non-cognitive skills assessment, it's from a, a formative perspective. We want to identify those students who maybe have low or lower in some of their non-cognitive skill areas so that we can figure out what support we need to provide to help boost them in those areas to increase likelihood of success, persistence, those types of things. But here, what we're talking about is using it in a, a slightly different way, where it's like we're trying to identify those students who are stronger in these areas um, and what we think will be able to acclimate well to the, the college classroom environment. But I guess my um, question is, how much of a conversation is there about how the culture of the college level classroom has to change when you start to bring in students that have more of a variety of academic and non-cognitive skill backgrounds? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I will tell you probably the best work on that, and I'm, I'm not super familiar with it, but um, I know when Peter Adams, uh, who was at, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Baltimore City Community Colleges or Community College of Baltimore County, and I wanna say it's the latter of those two. But Peter Adams is the one who started co-requisites, which was the idea of if you need remediation, rather than setting you back a whole semester, let's enroll you in a college course and the developmental course at the same time. So usually what they do is kind of like a one credit section of supplemental instruction or something like that. And he did, as I recall, because he was a faculty member, he was really curious about those kind of inter intra-class dynamics. And I can't remember substantively what the findings were, um, but but um, but that was certainly a topic that they touched on. And, and I don't know what the intermediate points were, but I can tell you whole states like Tennessee have moved toward co-requisite models. And so I, I definitely think that that question was answered in a way that people were happy with. So I don't know. We'll have to look that up. But 
Yeah. The other question I thought you were going to go into was an issue of stakes, because when you talk about like what we do with our Isaac platform, our and, and for just about everybody, non-cognitive measures, we always say are low stakes diagnostic, but now you're putting this question of placement on it. Oh, and absolutely. so you've changed the stakes. That's what I thought you were going to ask me. That's a great um, question too. But so I'll tell you this. This was one of this was probably the most fascinating validity conversation I ever had. And I was fortunate enough to, to be heavily advised on this by Brent Bridgman, who just recently retired after about, I think, 50 years of service at ETS. And Brent is basically, when it comes to like validity evidence on the SAT and the GRE, he's done more work than anybody and is one of the sweetest and nicest people. And shout out to Brent, super huge positive influence on my career. Um, especially when I was starting off early on. Um, but Brent was on kind of our review team and with his wealth of validity evidence, I remember the first time we started talking about these issues and like, could we accelerate students? Could we not? And did we feel like we had a sufficient amount of validity evidence behind this? And what happens if students fake it? And now we're we're advancing them based on invalid responses and all this stuff. And Brent, it was so cool because I'm, I'm like 26 or 27. I'm a kid at the time, you know, and I'm just like nervous about how we're going to do this. And Brent has that kind of gravitas where he can come in and be like, I've been doing this for 40 years, you know, all that stuff. And he's like, look, we have no evidence that holding them back is a good idea. He's like, so you're, there's no kind of um, justifiable defense for the, the existing decision. So it's basically like a do no harm situation. And he did a really nice job for us of actually pulling out research on like holding kids back in K-12 and that there's no evidence that holding them back is good for them. And so he's like, we have no evidence that slowing learning progressions is good. All the evidence coming out saying accelerating students is better. And so if students are going to fake it to get bumped up a level, it's only for their benefit. <laughs> and so I was here coming from this mindset like you were talking about, you know, like this old school validity we got to measure the construct and our responses have to be accurate. And he was like, you're not going to hurt them, was really kind of an interesting way to hear that conversation out. Um, and he also told us, by the way, to the broader use of non-cognitive measures in that conversation, he was like, faking isn't a concern because if you're using it diagnostically and, and students fake, all they're doing is denying themselves the sources of help that they need. And so, um, he basically was like, faking can't hurt your results in any case in the ways that you're using this type of work. And that's always something I've thought about is if we're using it in course placement and they're faking it to get a better you know, placement, that's only for their benefit. If they're faking it as part of advising, they're only hurting themselves. So it's the opposite of the validity context for almost any other assessment I've worked in, in that faking helps you or, or in, in, in ways that we don't want systematically. But in this world, the, the specific context of faking non-cognitive measures in the higher ed space that you and I are working in, it's only for their benefit in, in either case, or they're only doing it to hurt themselves. So it's kind of the a inversion of validity uh, in a lot of ways. And again, we'll cite that Michael Caine chapter, but I would highly recommend reading it, even if, according to our internal reports, it's rather dense and difficult. But it does, it will change the way you think about placement testing and validity in a lot of those different questions. Um, and I do want to talk about, before we get out of this topic, the, the issue of co-requisites. Um, 
I'm, I want, oh, Complete College America was the, the organization that did, um, and I've got to make a note to include that in our uh, reference list, but Complete College America did, I want to say kind of the first large scale multi-state review of co-requisites and basically came back and said, like, there's no doubt that this is an effective intervention. And the cool thing about co-requisites is, you know, when you talk about a lot of our broad-based interventions in higher ed, um, you talk, you know, first-year experience, living learning communities, intrusive advising, whatever it might be, all of those interventions have the caveat of, well, it depends how you do it. Because if you have a mandated, let's say, student success course, if it's not well-built and focused on, you know, the things that matter to student success, it's not going to improve student success. Intrusive advising, if you don't have a structure and a policy in place that actually makes that have some teeth, it's going to have minimal effect. All those things where it's like this policy may or may not work depending on how you implement it. Co-requisites were different because it was this very fundamental change to a problem that was working so poorly that if you just fix this kind of break in the pipeline, you were going to see success almost regardless of, of anything else. That was one of the really cool things about co-requisite models. So I want to move into current day, and I think, you know, if I were to talk now about where we are in terms of course placement, I, you know, 30 years ago, while the system was broken, you had a pretty common understanding of what the system was. <laughs> and yes. now it's almost like the wild, wild, some places have no placement. Some places, um, I do a lot of work with the state of Texas, and in Texas, they have a statewide Texas only, as Texas will. Uh, placement test called the TSIA, which is the Texas Skills. Oh, it's it's the TSIA is the Legislative Act, and then the test or the TSI Texas Success Initiative or something like that. I can't remember. But in any case, they have their own placement test. But it's also part of state policy that um, if you had a high school GPA above a certain level, or if you passed a college level algebra, you know. There were things where you could be exempt from the placement test automatically, and those students go straight into college-level courses. So again, even in that case where they have one statewide test, it's different for depending on a lot of different characteristics. A lot of places have co-requisite models. A lot of places are still using something like an AccuPlacer, but other places have moved to other metrics or away from tests altogether. So it's so different. And still a few places, I'd say, have those two to three sequence traditional remediation uh, models. So trying to describe what it's like today is different. Um, there was a great study that came out in 2011 from the National Assessment Governing Board, NAGB, where they actually did a survey of community colleges to understand how they were using placement tests. And so that, I wish they did that study annually to this day because we just don't have the same kind of finger on the pulse of what's going on in terms of placement. But I kind of want to move forward and talk about what what we did have, what we've learned, and what I think is positive going forward. Um, but I feel like I've been talking a lot. I kind of want Andrea give you kind of the floor, especially as someone who's newer to the space and been learning a lot. Like, what are some things that you see where you're like, this was clearly not good. This is clearly seems like a promising practice. You know, things you'd like to fix or things that you think are working from what you've read about what's going on in the course placement world. A couple of things that stood out to me, I'll talk first about the course placement measures themselves. You had brought up some research that was actually done in K-12. 
And I'll say that when I was first starting to learn about course placement, a lot of it reminded me of like the, the tracking conversations and the, the literature about tracking students. And um, I there was actually a study that was conducted by the universe um, or the um, U.S. Department of Ed. It was it's pretty old at this point. I think it was in 1999. But they talked about how even students who were placed into AP classes and failed those classes were more likely to go on to get a college degree than students who were not placed into AP classes. And it goes back to that 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 um, that kind of idea of even just having the access is often a great thing for students. Um, and when I was looking at the 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 placement tests themselves, one thing that stood out to me, I think it was a, a study by Judith Scott Clayton, also from CCRC, uh, where she mentioned that our these tests often do a really good job of or a decent job of predicting what students are going to do well in college level courses is in getting a B or above, but that they do a much poorer job of predicting who is going to pass those classes in general. And if we're thinking about, um, uh, you know, I, when I was in college, there was a phrase, these get degrees. Um, but it's this idea that, you know, once we get past college, the GPA is not as important as, you know, the persistence and the fact that you got the degree to begin with. And so I love everything that you had to say about um, uh, the importance of keeping students on the pipeline and doing what we can, whether that is, you know, simplifying pathways, whether that's acceleration, um, uh, whether that's prerequisites to make them stay here. So that was something that was uh, really um uh, aligned with a lot of the things I was thinking. And then the only, the other thing that I'll bring up um, more on the intervention side is that I am really looking forward to learning more about the co-requisites space and what that work looks like, uh, especially because I think it gives the opportunity for including a lot more of that non-cognitive support um, that I think is critically important. I, uh, I think that it's, absolutely helpful when you have faculty who are of the mindset of like, I'm afraid that we're going to let these students into a course and they're not going to be successful to be able to say, but look, they have these non-cognitive skills that can help bolster their success. But I would love for the conversation to shift to, or for us to get to a place where it's like, they might not have these non-cognitive skills, but we can support them in these ways and in developing these non-cognitive skills in alignment or at the same time that they're taking this college level course. And together, we, I think from, for me, it seems like that is going to be an approach that is going to enable the, the greatest amount of access and equity, which, you know, when we think about community college and what is the purpose of community college, you know, it's to provide access to higher education and to, to provide it to um, more non-traditional students. And so any ways that we can ensure through course placement that we're still honoring that kind of like broad mission to me is going to be really cool. You know, it's, I'm so glad you brought that up because we'd be remiss if we didn't leave this conversation without talking about equity, but um, you bring up such a good point about faculty. And I make this point a lot that no matter what type, like I always hear this when we talk about community colleges, like, well, they're different and we have a different, and I'm like, look, I know your faculty. Like there are still, like we talked about this last week with this idea of academic, I don't wanna say elitism, but, but the idea from the academic side of when students don't make it, it's their fault and it's their choice or they weren't meant to be here, right? That kind of very, I would say 50s and 60s notion of, well, 
not everybody should make it, right? Some people aren't smart enough to have a college degree. And I don't think if you ask someone, you know, to a person, we very rarely say that. Like when we see students leave, I would be challenged to find, you know, the faculty member or whoever who looks at a student and says, well, they, they weren't smart enough to be here anyhow. Um, but when we talk about retention, when we talk about course placement, when there's failure, it's that attribution. And we don't like to make the, the intelligence level attribution, but we're very comfortable with the motivational or the engagement base. Well, they chose not to get involved. Like we gave them everything we could. And I, I love that about our work that we can say like, they didn't think they should be here the day they showed up. Mm. And, and you didn't acknowledge that. And then you dropped a ton of content and made it insensitive comment or whatever. And then they left and we're like, well, they just, they weren't motivated. I think they were motivated. They overcame all the challenges to be here. And, and it, but it's that core attribution of, well, if they fail, it's their fault. That really hurts us. And to get back to the equity point, there was really great work done in the state of California, where I think this really drove a lot of their state level changes in course placement, but also really fueled the state to get all the community colleges there involved in uh, guided pathways, which was they started to disaggregate the data by underserved populations and understood, wow, yes, mm -hmm. these rates of placement and passing are terrible, but when we look at them by racial, racial ethnic group or by socioeconomic status, they're petrifyingly scary. And so that was, I think, a, a really important point that we that was not explicitly talked about a ton when we were going through all these innovations in course placement was that, and it goes back to what I said at the beginning, our most underserved populations were being most underserved by this system. It's such a good example of, of where that term comes from, of we built this just thinking everybody was a rich white male from the 1900s. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they weren't. We were dealing with a broad population and was having adverse impacts on a lot of these other groups where we, in fact, were trying to serve. Yeah. And so that brings me to kind of our concluding point. We're almost at our hour already. So this has worked out well. But this is the kind of last thing I want to say about this whole system that has spent the last couple of decades being revised and reformed and turned on its head. I think, Andre, you'd agree with me. Like, we love this idea of the first thing we should do with a student is assess them and understand their strengths and challenges. And based on those results, we should have a conversation with them and provide the appropriate support to maximize their probability of success. All of those things, some people would have said about old school course placement. Hey, we're giving them this math test or this English test because we need to figure out what's the right courses so we can give, put them in the right place. Except it wasn't doing any of those things, largely because of, I think, some of our cultural attitudes, because of the sequence of those resources we built up, and most importantly, the assumption that that measure of academic preparation was the best insight into student potential. When in fact, what we know now is it was too onerous, it was too difficult, and it was focused on the wrong stuff. I'd argue, give me you know, our survey, which takes about 20 minutes, plus maybe 20 questions about how successful you've been in math and English in the past and your confidence to be successful in those things in the future. And I can put forth a better placement plan. And I think that's where this holistic understanding of non-cognitive characteristics, and we say holistic because it's not just the non-cognitive, you need to have an academic understanding as well, because that intervention plan needs to be both academic and non-cognitive. I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't say that. So I think that's my point. It's like, I actually like this idea of placement remediation. We just need to do it entirely differently. 
So any other thoughts, Andrea, before we get out of here this week? Um, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to checking out this reference list. Um, I think there's a more digging that I want to do in the course placement. Um, but I completely agree with you that this is an area that it's exciting to see how much change there has been in such a short amount of time. Uh, and the fact that different places are doing it differently signals to me that hopefully they're doing what is best in their context for their specific students. And I'm looking forward to learning more about the, the successful interventions that come out of different places across the country. So let me ask you this. So we talked like about a lot of stuff. If you were to think about one of these topics that we've addressed today, that we were, if we were going to do like a follow-up, you know, kind of developmental education special issue podcast, what's one where you'd be like really interested in spending an hour talking about? Hmm. Um, I think, of course, like you said, knowing my my learning and and program theory background, I think the the areas that I would be super interested in are learning about the the specifics of how different institutions are implementing implementing things like course acceleration, things like co-requisites. What are the, the challenges that they're seeing with implementing these things and how are they overcoming those challenges? What are the best practices and those types of things? Um, something that can give uh, institutions who are thinking maybe the way that we're doing things isn't the best way kind of helps give a roadmap on how do we move towards a, a, practically speaking, how do we move towards a, a more effective course placement system? Yeah, I think the next time we can definitely dive into some of the specifics and logistics, if you will, because I, I do think, I mean, you and I have been to enough conferences where like someone's talking about like this great innovation they put forth on their campus. And then the whole like 20 minute Q&A is like, so when, what email did you you know, and how, what time of day was the training? And I'm like, you have to figure that out. Like, that's not the best practice here. The best practice is what they did, not how they put it into place. That always drives me. I remember the last <laughs> conference, I think it was the FYE conference I was at last year. And someone from uh, University of Texas, El Paso gave this great session on holistic advising. And then all the questions or presentation on holistic advising. And then all the questions were, like, you know, what were your qualifications for hiring advisors? And, and I'm like, this is an email. This is not 10 minutes of conversation at a conference. So I love the specifics and logistics, but I do sometimes get sad when that is the entirety of our conversation. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. So. Thanks so much, Andrea. And uh, we will talk to everybody else soon. Yes. Talk to y'all later. Thanks for listening. Tune in next month for episode 3, Advising. Until then, have a wonderful day and an even better tomorrow.